Hey, Randy. So next week, it's very exciting because we are back in Asia Pack on the 14th and 15th of April. You mean we get to actually travel? Oh, no. Don't be silly. (laughs) That's not on the cards. But we do get to virtually meet up with all of our favorite Asia Pack people and a lot of people that we haven't met before. Yeah, I see there's some people we definitely know speaking at the conference. Teresa Torres is one of the headliners. Rich Miranov and Colin Powell are both doing breakouts. We've had all of them on the podcast. And also there's Crystal Wijaya, EIR at Reforge, Bruce Haldane, CPO at Gojek, and Cameron Adams, co-founder and CPO at Canva. And if you've never done one of MTP's virtual conferences, they're fantastic. Uh, We can highly recommend it. And you get to do a special social hour with us. They do use an incredible platform, which does bring the conference to life. So you get to do roundtables, one-to-one speed networking, and yeah, the fun social hours. And also, bonus, what else do you get, Randy? Every ticket includes one full year of Mind the Product membership that's worth $250. So that's fantastic as well. And to give you a special sneak preview, we're talking to one of our favorite speakers from the conference today on the podcast. It's Anna Leanda. She's a UX research manager at Zendesk, and she's going to talk to us about how the world of user experience has changed over the last year. And she's got some great tips and insights into how to run research in your team. So it's always something worth trying to improve upon and because it's a pretty tricky area to get right. And we could have spent half an hour just talking to her about the best way of taking notes during a research interview. And we were very tempted to, but we actually went into (laughs) quite a bit more. So without further ado, let's chat to Anna. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Anna, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. Oh, it's lovely to see you both or meet you both. (laughs) So cool. Before we get started on our questions and our topic for today, it would be great if you could give us all a quick lowdown on who you are, what you do and kind of how you got into your role as well. Yeah, um, happy to uh, give some color. So I'm Anna Leander. I'm a UX research manager at Zendesk. I've been working in research for 10 years in the field. So working in um, different uh, industries like Zendesk is a B2B business, but also working in B2C, banking, finance. um, So a broad range of experience. Ended up doing research uh, on the back of a master's degree in HCI in Melbourne. I did postgrad there and that's how I ended up in UX research. How long have you worked in product teams in, in that 10 years? Have you always worked in product teams? Or 
Uh, yeah, I would say most of that 10 years, definitely. So the benefit and the best part of the UX research is when it gets applied or enacted, the findings help with some kind of product development or roadmap. That's very much the case at Zenesk. And also the past companies I've worked at, we try and work closely between product and research so that it can influence or help with some decision making. There's sometimes controversy about whether research should be part of the product team or whether it's a separate team that's kind of a shared service within the organization. Where do you come down on that one? Oh, that's a tough one. I would say uh, I'm worried less, or my personal point of view is less about where the research team sits, but I guess how collaborative the team works with the product team. I guess one benefit of being outside, let's say, the product development or product management team is that Um, We as researchers, ideally, we're the third party. We're the objective um, part of the group. We're we're there to sort of do the research, find answers to questions and help with the product team to make decisions. Sometimes, potentially, if we were inside a product management team, maybe there's an influence there, but we still should maintain that third party um, objectiveness. I like that. I've never heard that take on it before, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so um, that's how uh, me and the team, we really approach things is that we are there, we're listening, um, and then we go and speak to the customer and we bring all the information and like all the details, the positive, the negative. Our job is to sort of synthesize it and make it easy to digest or easy to enact, but we don't cut out or bias it. We try not to in any way. How do your team achieve that? Like, how do you kind of check yourselves or audit yourselves on whether you're remaining um, unbiased and and maintaining that distance, I guess? Yeah, I think um, some of it comes down to really understanding the objective of the project or the team. So is it, do you want us to tell you, you know, what you might want to hear? Are we just the enablers or the, the people just to say, yes, let's go ahead? Or are, are we the ones to go out there and find that information to help you with that decision making? Uh, can we highlight something that you might not have known or thought of? Can we bring in some extra information or details there? Um, I see our responsibility is bringing in that information, but what happens next? We try and make sure that it's used as much as possible, but we're not there to say, oh, well, this is the thing you have to do. It's up to the product um, team to decide that the next stage. Mm. I think what we do when we kick off research or we start to understand what the teams want to understand, we try and attend as many roadmap meetings, planning meetings, um, meet with the product team, meet with other members of the team as well, so that we're gathering this whole lot of different questions and we're bringing into a project and then we prioritize which are the key ones that this project must answer for this time. Yeah, so you have two different camps of user research, it sounds like, one which is more exploratory and then one which is we've got a very specific question to answer you know, this is the research that we're going to do to answer that question. Yeah, that, that's a perfect summary, I would say. So we do that sort of exploratory upfront discovery work. That's the ones where the problem space might be vague or fuzzy. The team really needs some information to sort of start planning or thinking about a feature or a need. And then the ones further down the track where if we think about the development um, cycle, like the triple diamond, which is what we have at Zendesk, um, that would be the third diamond or further along the track where it's about to be 
developed or is about to be released, we're looking at the finer details, smaller things that need to be tweaked or adjusted. So the risk level, I would say, is lower. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, cool. And oh, you've so you've worked in the field for 10 years. Um, obviously, quite a lot has changed in the last year. So, you know, how has the last year, year and a half, has it been a year? No, maybe year and a bit. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm lost <laughs> in time. Uh, how has that affected the way that your teams work? Yeah, I think partly we were already prepared. So because our customers are so international, um, we were already doing a lot of so-called remote interviews and remote research uh, so that we could include a good broad range of customers in different regions, in different industries, um, different usage. Uh, What's happened now, I think, in the last year, year and a half, is that we have noticed other people starting to do similar things, you know, these remote um, customer conversations. But also what we've seen is a lot more use of other tools, I would say. So before we were relying on very simple tools. Now there's a lot more, for example, of using of virtual whiteboards. So mm-hmm. at Zenness we use Miro. So there's a lot of, like, for example, my team's just done a project with um, participatory design or, or co-design and research. So we have a the customers come in and look at the same whiteboard and create some artifacts for us to look at. And it's a new way of looking at um, data when it's all done in a virtual whiteboard space. Anna, so you said your team's already uh, adapted to to working virtually for a lot of research. What have you learned about setting things up? Because, you know, there's a big difference between doing this as a once in a while as a hobby and then setting it up to uh, research remotely as a regular practice. What has your team learned about the physical setup? Uh, you said you use Miro. What else have you had to take into account? Yeah, um, some of these sound really nitty gritty or into the details and I'll go into them and let me know if it's interesting or not. But an example might be um, we were talking about amongst the team note taking and um, we, most of us have a setup of a laptop and an external monitor because there's a lot of documents and, and data that we look through. And so we were talking about um, note-taking and looking at a customer when you're talking to them versus like the second screen. So this is me looking at another screen and talking about potentially yeah. having a, a camera on the second screen so that the customer feels still like you're talking to them, but you're still able to capture the notes comfortably and um, all of that. So there's things, consideration like that, good lighting. Um, some team members have considered like a ring light to make sure that um, when we're recording, the recording comes out much nicer. Um prepping the customer as well about what's expected. You know, do they have to have their video on? What kind of internet connection? Will we be sharing our screen? Will they need to share their screen? Um, Some of that we were doing very lightly before um, because there was still some in-person research, but now we have tightened all of that to make sure a lot of that is included. I think that's really interesting about the note-taking side of things. So, and, And it's really nice to hear how other people run their setups and stuff when you're doing user research because there are so many different options of different ways that you could do it and different tools you could use. Tell me more about note-taking while you're doing the interview because it's the first time that I've heard of the actual interviewer taking their own notes as well. Is that always been the case or do you have other people taking notes as well? 
That is a really good question. I think there's a couple things. It depends on the comfort level of the researcher. Some of us are um, comfortable transcribing word for word whilst running the interview. Some of us take a sort of key quotes or make note of a timestamp and then come back again. Some of us need to listen to the recording once more after the call and then transcribe from there. So I really think it depends. Ideally, what we like to do if it's a larger research project, especially is have involvement from the design team and the product management team so that when the interview is happening, it's really a cross-functional involvement. And that way, by the time the research report comes out, it's very much a formality. There are no surprises there. Everyone's heard Mm -hmm. the same thing at the same time. And that report acts like a resource that could be pulled upon later down the track, let's say, the team moves on or a new project kicks off, which is something similar, or there's, you know, some parallels there, that research report becomes an ongoing resource, evergreen in nature, you could say. I'm yeah. curious with the, the uh, increase in uh, popularity of things like Otter and Descript and things like that, the, all the automated transcription services, is manual note-keeping still the best way or is it good to use one of these services? That's a really good question. Admittedly, maybe I'm a bit old school, but I definitely keep all my own notes. I'm one of the people when I'm doing interviews that I transcribe it word for word. It's not ideal, but I find that um, for me as an individual researcher, when I'm doing that, it helps to keep me in the context of the conversation. And I can think of that next question that may not have been planned, something that if we go on a tangent, it's quite easy to capture. Um, Mm. With those tools, I haven't tested them personally, but what I find is the more reliant you are on technology, the more there's chances for issues. <laughs> but, yeah. um, what I find is that, it, especially with newer uh, researchers, um, is that if you over-rely on things, let's say we go back to normal, we, you can see customers in real life, there's often times where you can't bring a recording device. So what do you do? You need to have those skills somehow, whether it's just writing a few words and then adding, filling in the blank later or being able to capture a lot more. I think you've given Randy and I a challenge to uh, transcribe as we're, <laughs> as we're doing our interviews, but I'm not sure either of us are up to that. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> I think if you don't have to, then why? But um, if, like, for example, if you have a team to help you, then why not, like, have everyone mm-hmm. in, the, in the, the meeting have a job so that it's valuable for everybody? That's one of the sort of ways that I work is try that everyone in the, the meeting has something to do to contribute some way to meeting that customer. Yeah. And you mentioned as well that um, obviously you work uh, internationally, What's the best way that you found that you can work across all of those different time zones and, and countries and um, different types of businesses as well? Like, how do you choose who you're going to talk to? Uh, it's challenging. I would say there's a couple of things that play a factor. One is tools and systems. So, for example, if I'm an, uh, running a research project and I need to, or I should be talking to people in different regions, it's about juggling the calendar um, blocking out time. So let's say I'll speak to APAC on these days and then I'll speak to Amir or EMEA like Europe these days. And so I kind of know and I pace myself a little bit because, you know, obviously different time zones, it can be very difficult. Um, 
I think when it comes to who we talk to, it's a little bit like uh, we look at the segmentation, the project, the use cases, and then we invite a set of customers to join us. So it also may be who is interested and who opts into the study as well. Um, we may aim for a section of each different region, but we may not always get a good representation every region. It depends who wants to participate. So we've been talking a lot about the setup of the research. Once you've actually done it, how do you communicate what you've learned well to the team? I find that can be really, really difficult sometimes. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned before, ideally we get them involved as and when and as it's ongoing so that they already know. Um, but if they can't do that, there's a couple of ways in which we try and communicate findings, both to the core team, the core development or scrum team, as well as beyond. So we do things like uh, research reports, like a formal um, bigger document, which has more detail um, where you can dive in. You can also look at a part that's specifically interesting to you. Um, that will be presented normally via a Zoom, and then we will also record it to make it available for other people. Um, we use Confluence as well. Um, we might have a research summary. We try and take uh, video clips as well, short video clips, which also get shared to a broader, the broader department, I would say, so not just the Scrum team. Um, there's other ways in which we try and uh, share the research. Some of it is a bit more organic or ad hoc. So, for example, if we're sitting in a stand-up or a meeting and we can, we oh, okay, that sounds like something that somebody in my team has done. I think the, the two of you should have a talk about it. And that way we try and share and reuse and highlight as much research as possible, especially if it's relevant. In terms of communicating that stuff out, do you find that people who haven't participated in the research do, when you tell them, do they absorb it in the same way as people who were there for it and had a stake in it? I think that if you are there hearing it from the customer directly, there is an element that that's more compelling than reading it from a report. Sometimes a report could be created and you don't know the context or you may not um, have the background, then I think there is a risk that it may not be taken on board as much as if if they were participating. But in a real world where everyone's busy and also project teams change, that's not always the case. So that's why I asked the team. The good thing about having that cross-functional team involved is then they also become the advocates and the evangelists for that research. And they would refer it also in moving on when they move on to other teams as well. And the report that you mentioned, how long does it take to put that together? Because it sounds like it's quite a lot of work. I think it depends. Um, sometimes as a team, we try and do analysis dynamically. Again, it depends if you have a cross-functional team available. What that means is that we may do some tagging or categorizing of uh, material as and when we're hearing it. So it's happening live. And that, that way, by the end when we're, all the interviews are done, let's say we're just doing interviews, we could look at certain tags or categories and pull it out, the insights related to those tags and categories, and that can speed up things a lot. Um, that could take maybe a week. When it's not done, it could take even longer. I've experienced where it's, it's taken a while to go through because sometimes when you finish the interviews, it could span weeks or even months, and then you'll have to go back and refresh your memory and go back through all of them 
with a certain uh, target or object in mind. And do you limit yourself um, in terms of the number of people that you speak to? Is there a sweet spot in terms of the numbers? That's a really good question. I would say in terms of numbers, it depends on the segmentation or the user group. Like how detailed do you want to get or do you want a general set of findings? Is it for a particular type of user group? Maybe it's by geography or area or whatever demographics or use case. Or is it something that you just want to have an indicator of what might be the upcoming needs of these types of users and have it be quite broad? So it really depends. But what I would really encourage people to do is be wary of having one or two conversations and saying that's the research that we've done and make a big decision on that, especially if it's from the outset. You want to have a good amount of at least interviews or customers involved so that the earlier on the the cost of course direction or course correction is not as high. It's worth to speak to a reasonable amount so that you have you can make a decision or direction and confidence. Interested in boosting acquisition and driving product adoption? Or perhaps you're focused on reducing churn and improving profitability. Whatever the metrics that matter most to you, track them with Mixpanel, the most powerful self-serve product analytics solution. More than 26,000 companies around the world, including Deliveroo, TransferWise, now known as Wise, Uber, Ticketmaster and DocuSign, use Mixpanel to build better products. And now you can too. And the product experience listeners get $5,000 off Mixpanel. Visit mixpanel.com forward slash MTP and enter code MTP. 5k to claim your offer. So how do you know, I'm going to make this a big question actually. Yeah. How do you know when you've done enough research and from the other side of it, they say, you know, you're either testing before you go out or you're testing in production. When is it right to just skip a research phase and just do something and and the doing is the research? Okay. So Two questions. One is that, um, how do you know if it's enough? I think one of the tactics that I use is that when you're doing the interviews, when you start hearing the same thing over and over again, you're reaching saturation in terms of the amount of customers to interview. However, I think it depends on the organization and the appetite for risk that they have. Sometimes I have experienced where they hear the same thing over and over again, but they still would like more, even though more is not better, but at that point, they would still want more just to have that comfort level there. Maybe it's about to be a big investment for that organization. So there's mm-hmm. that part. That's what I would say is how do you know if there's enough for the interviews? Um, but I would also say with that is it's good to bring in other sources of data. So if what you're hearing matches some data point that you have versus another and triangulate, then I think you're on your way and to be in a good position. So there's that part. And then the second question was, is it better to just build it and then test it by having people use it? Or is it better to do the research up front? Again, or, I think- Or when is it, be- when might it be better to do it that way? Or is it ever? Yeah, I think it depends on the business again. Like for example, if they 
are going to build something, it doesn't cost that much to build it, or they have a very good instrumentation in place where they can conclusively collect data that way. There's benefits in, of doing it that way as well. Um, it depends also if they just want the quantitative, like where are people clicking, if people are using it, yes or no, or if they want to know a little bit more about why, like why are they doing this, why are they doing that. I don't see them as an either or. In fact, I see them as quite complementary because you could do all that research up front, build the thing, release it, measure it, and then potentially come back and, oh, there's something interesting. People are dropping off at this point. People are not using it. That's a, that's a big uh-oh, but still worth to see if it doesn't cost that much in terms of the investment or you are able to invest that way. So I think it's not an either or, but a both and. <laughs> and when you're looking at insights, um, you kind of mentioned early on in the chat that your job as researchers is to, you know, not be biased, but to kind of find out information and, and present that information back to the teams. How do you manage the um, slight sort of dichotomy, I guess, of you're presented with fact, which is the opinion of or the the experience of the users. And then in order to kind of draw insights out, it's almost like you're applying your your own sort of take on what they're saying. Um, so how do you get that balance of this is the, the factual, what everyone is saying, and then this is my opinion of what the insights are? Very good question. I think there's a couple of things. One, as I mentioned before, is that if we have that cross-functional team um, helping and let's say sitting in on an interview, we'll try and do that dynamic um, analysis and we'll bring in different people from that team. So we've even brought in um, engineers, software developers to come and help us do that so that the analysis is not based on one person. It gets tagged or categorized by different people. That's one tact that um, I apply. Um, the other ways are um, because you're right, uh, people can sometimes also say what they want you to hear, right? So often we don't only ask about opinions, but we, we are about observing things. I, you know, mm -hmm. Ideally, when you can do that in person, it's obviously easier when you can watch people use your software or the environment that they're in. But um, we try and understand the needs from a person and then use the data that we have available. Or I'll even look further abroad. So I'll look at industry reports. I'll look at um, ticket data. So what, what are people asking about in customer support? Um, I'll ask sales and success people. I'll look at other companies. I'll look at what's what's out there. If I do a Google search, I'll look at academic papers. I'll just look at different various sources to see how accurate it is from what I've heard and what I've interpreted from these customers or users that I've interviewed. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I guess that you know, when when we think of user research, we often just think of the interviews, but there's a lot more to lot. it when you're doing it more thoroughly. <laughs> so one of the questions that always comes up is there's a big difference between what we talk about on stages at conferences, uh, in, in interviews and blog posts and things like that, versus when we go back to our, our desk and actually do the job. What's the biggest difference you see between what we say is best practice and rolling up your sleeves and actually doing it? That is a really tough question. <laughs> I'd have to think about that one a bit more. But I would say that in general, I take a lot of things as what people say is aspirational. And I try and mm -hmm. translate it as 
what could be as usable as possible. But um, to be honest, I also look at other sources of ideas from other industries where it's not necessarily a conference talk or a blog post, but I see how other people work and then I adopt it. A bit like a magpie, I would say, like a collective <laughs> and try and put it together in a toolkit. What's something really cool that you've picked up from, from that approach? Yeah, so um, this is from way back when I worked at a large financial institute, but I see this here at Zendesk with program managers. For example, they use a RACI model, and mm-hmm. RACI is not that exciting, I, I would say. I don't know if you'd have a, a main <laughs> conference talk about the RACI model. It's these smaller mm-hmm. things which live in the maybe a little bit in the mundane or the dry, yeah. which actually are the, the most valuable or useful, I find. But I don't know if that's helpful to answer your question. No, I've never heard anyone get excited about RACI before, but that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we work in such a big organization, you have to remember that the research is only as good as the people who hear it and use it. So we could write as many research reports as we want. Um, if no one knows about it, it's like the tree that's fallen in the forest. Does it actually fall? I hope that's the right saying. If you have to fact yeah. check. <laughs> um, but, you know, we want to make sure that what we're hearing is front and what we are seeing is written up, communicated, whatever which way suits our audience and is front of mind of them so that they can use it and enact it as quickly as possible. Okay, so if I don't have the luxury of a research team, which, um, you know, many businesses, unfortunately, don't, you know, how can I get research done within my business um, or kind of convince stakeholders to invest in quant or qual research? Hmm. I think when it comes to research, Um, one of the positions I take is research doesn't have to be done by a researcher, which may be a bit controversial. So I think there's value in people doing it themselves if they can. Obviously, there's different levels of rigorousness, but I've also worked in organizations being that team of one researcher for everyone. Um, And I've also seen other people operate where they are a blended role or they find that research will help them but that's not their role per se. What I find is that with any information or context, it always enriches or helps the job that you're trying to do. So if you don't have resources for a researcher or a researcher, I would encourage people to look at resources online about how to do interviews, um, just get curious, get scrappy, look at the different sources of data you have. As I mentioned before, the customer support tickets has a wealth of information. That's what people are proactively complaining about or seeking help in. That can be a great source of data for things that people need that aren't met or issues that need that needs resolving in the product or the thing. And there's a lot of interesting stories of even founders out there who, as part of kicking off their business, went and did a whole lot of research, like the Airbnb founders. That's, I feel, a classic story where Mm. funders, um, they were out there and they weren't sure what was going on with the platform. So they went to New York, they offered some free service and they went to uh, speak to their users, the hosts, understand what's going on, finding out what's what's happening actually 
with the users. So I thought that was really interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a formal researcher who has to do all of that. Obviously, as I mentioned before, the quality will be a lot different, but it's still valuable information. Yeah. Do you think that there's um, a risk of bad research or kind of, you know, bad outcomes if you don't have someone who's experienced enough or, you know, taking the right approach? Is there such a thing as bad research? I think there can be. And that's one of the things that I was mentioning before about rigor is that sometimes information and data can be cut in a certain way, or we just, if we're not mindful of it, we can hear what we want to hear and we only present one side of the the story, right? So it depends on, I think, the assumptions that you make, whether you can decouple yourself from the project or the outcomes, things like that. How, how, how objective can that person be? And also it's a bit um, like Randy's question before about how much is enough. Um, you could go and have one interview and say, this is, this is the, the data, all the data, right? And it's just one person. It becomes, rather than research, it's anecdotal. And that's also a risk right there. Mm. So I think um, one needs to be careful. And it's often good to do it in pairs or with somebody else who may have even better if they have a different objective because that tension will help keep you both as objective as possible. Okay. You just hit on something that I need to ask you about. And uh, unfortunately we're kind of at the end of our our time limit. So I'm just going to ask this one last question. Go ahead. Um, So that anecdata issue that comes up, the the idea when the, the CEO or the sponsor comes in and says, somebody just told me this and we have to act on it. How do you, have that conversation with them and help turn uh, an opinion into actual factual based research. That is a really tough conversation to have. And I've heard (laughs) um, people in other organizations really struggle with that. And um, what happens is I've heard, which is a bit unfortunate is they just don't have the time to do it. So what happens is the project moves forward, the thing gets built. And then in the end, it could be potentially wasted resources. So if that was me or my team in that situation, I would definitely encourage, like, give, give us some time, even a few weeks to really test this hypothesis and see how true it is or how many customers need this or add some more color or light or details. So beyond that thing, this is maybe what I would say is that, okay, we've got this one data point. Let's add some more depth to it. Let's, find out more and that will definitely help with the development process but that's a really tough situation to be in yeah it sounds like you're trying to get the the person who brings it to you used to a cadence of we're not going to change our strategy right now and turn on the dime we're going to this is really interesting let's back it up and if you still feel this strongly in a few weeks and we've gotten something to validate it then we do it otherwise let's let's just see and again, it depends on the risk appetite of the leadership. If they're totally okay with making a decision based on one conversation, that's, I mean, that's also a, a different like matter altogether, right? It I is. love that. It, that actually sounds like something you could say directly to your leadership team of, well, it depends on your risk appetite. If you're feeling like you want to take loads of risk today, then that's fine. We'll go ahead. But <laughs> And that's something like, if you don't mind, I know we're out of time, but this is also something else that I add is that when we are t- 
taking in projects, one of the things we try to ask is, how big of a risk is this? Is this something mm-hmm. that, oh, you just need to know, but you're not really going to make a decision on it or the team's going to move forward anyway versus like we think we're going to invest a lot of money in this, but we're really not sure. Those are two different, very different risk levels. And mm-hmm. where we can really add value is less for the low risk, but really for the higher risks that we can collect all that information and, and bring that risk level at least a little bit down. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a great way to wrap up a conversation, which I hope people will take you know, this single conversation and use it to really influence them to learn more about what they need to learn more about. So many things. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anna. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, remember... If you liked that, you want to see more from Anna Lee, and you want to hang out with Lily and I, you can do it at the conference next week, MTP Digital Conference. That's right, Randy. We will see you at the conference. And if we don't see you at the conference and you want to hang out with us anyway, then we're always available at MTP Pod. Come and chat with us on Twitter. Or you can buy us a drink when that's a thing again. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm -hmm.